Sports Ethos New York Knicks podcast, Andre Galliber. The finals are over. The Denver Nuggets are champions. Give them credit. Well-deserved. Joker, anybody who didn't know Joker was all-world before this series, you better know it now. This guy is absolutely awesome. And anything he did in his youth to to get him the skill set that he has now will be promptly repeated, copied, emulated. It's just amazing. This guy's touch. I, I'm... Uh, just completely unstoppable. He makes decisions sometimes. You couldn't make better and quicker decisions if you had a controller in your hand. Truly amazing. It's not just seeing the game. It's not just slowing the game down. It's not just that. It's also the ability in a split second to make a quick decision. Passing the ball, shooting the ball. Just amazing, amazing stuff. Well-deserved. Give all the credit in the world. People going a little overboard now with kind of trying to make up for their own ignorance to his game or trying to make up for other people's ignorance to his game. It's just, you know, he's getting praised for, you know, how he smirks at this point. It's kind of ridiculous, but just an amazing, he seems like an amazing teammate. It seems like a pretty good dude. Couldn't, couldn't be happier for him and his team. Malone, give him credit, the head coach. Listen, give Jamal Murray credit as well. He was awesome throughout these playoffs and the series. Had his ups and his downs, but when you're very dependent on outside shooting, that's going to be the case. But just just well played. Aaron Gordon just well played how he played the game. You know, some of the some of the ways they attacked Miami is that's the stuff that dreams are made of for a basketball fan. Seeing them attack mismatches, seeing them throw the ball uh, high when smaller defenders are on bigger guys. Just like the simplest of things that most guys just ignore. It was just really pretty to watch. And all you fools out there who think it was boring, you're not real basketball fans. You're casual fans. And the NBA needs casual fans to make money, so that's fine. Just know that you're a casual fan. If If there's any finals where you feel like it's boring, you're not a real basketball fan. Simple as that. Anyway, let's talk about some Knicks basketball, some Nick news. Let's start with Scott Perry. All due respect to Scott Perry, all the best. Uh, whatever you got, whatever you got going on next, good luck. I Scott Perry, for those of you who don't know, and it seems to be a lot of you, Scott Perry's a holdover from the previous administration, the previous front office, prior to Leon Rose. He was extended a couple years into Leon Rose's uh, regime, which looks good on him. Because a lot of times guys are not even held over when the next regime takes over. He was held over and then extended. So he, he must be a good worker. He's, he's good at his job. But too many of you don't seem to understand how the Knicks front office works. Because too many of you are sitting around giving Scott Perry all this credit for what the Knicks, those of you who agree with it, or the, or the blame for those of you who disagree, for all of the moves the Knicks made or didn't make in the, over the last three, four seasons. You don't understand how the Knicks front office works. Scott Perry was not in a decision-making position for the New York Knicks. 
Leon Rose makes all of the decisions for the New York Knicks. Now, he may have been prior to Leon Rose. You want to give him credit or blame for Julius Randle signings and the Portis signing, etc. But not since Leon Rose got here. What kind of Knicks fan doesn't know that? Now, I'll give you a little bit of a pass if you don't know that Knicks kind of have this this approach where they, they solicit everyone's opinion and everyone gets a voice. Some voices are louder than others or stronger than others, but Leon Rose makes the final decision and sometimes he might acquiesce to one guy's favorite player or favorite mood, trade, etc. But that's what it is. You think because he has a general manager title that he's sitting around pulling the strings for the Knicks? How do you think that and, and have followed the team all these years with Leon Rose? Why would you think that? I was flabbergasted at the tweets, the posts on social media talking about what Perry did in the last two, three seasons or what he didn't do that they wanted him to do. Good job, bad job. Like he's the one pulling the strings. I just don't get how you can follow a team and have such strong opinions, so strong that you want to go on social media and share them. And not know that simple fact that Leon Rose runs things for the New York Knicks. That he makes the decisions, not the general manager. Good, bad, or ugly. It just feels like, I say all the time, people are fans of their teams and not fans of the NBA. They watch highlights of the NBA, but they watch their team. Maybe they watch them every night, maybe they don't. But they, now i got to add something to it. You don't even read about your team. You don't follow your team, the news about your team. You have no clue what's going on. You just watch the games and go on Twitter and type your little screwy opinions and move on. I don't even know if you move on with your life. Just get hung up arguing with people on Twitter. 90% of you don't know what you're talking about because you don't really follow your team. You're just watching the games. And it's okay to just watch the games and be a fan. It's okay. I just don't understand how you can know that you are a surface fan, but then be on Twitter screaming at the top of your lungs about the job Scott Perry did. Scott Perry brought Jalen Brunson in. Like, what? (laughs) What? Are you serious? For those of you who don't know, this is what, this is who, who, what, and how the Nick front office operates. Okay, you have Leon Rose, who runs everything, president. His say is the final say. Those of you who hate Jim Dolan, you may have all the good reasons in the world to hate him. His first 10, 15 years as owner of the New York Knicks was an unmitigated disaster. But from everything, coming from someone who's followed the team and reads about the team, ever since he hired Isaiah Thomas, he has been hands-off on basketball decisions. Okay? Isaiah Thomas screwed up. He brought in, he asked the league for for recommendations. He brought in Donnie Walsh. Donnie Walsh has never said anything other than he was able to make every decision he wanted to make. He checked with Dolan and Dolan would always say, what do you want? Whatever you want to do. Okay. That's how he operated. Now, when, when Steve Mills was, took over for Phil, for Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson also had complete control. He had to go to Dolan for buyouts and to trade KP. And Dolan wouldn't let him just get rid of Carmelo Anthony. He put his foot down on that. But 
when Steve Mills took over, Steve Mills has worked for Dolan for a lot of years. You could say that Dolan, whatever Steve Mills decided to do, Dolan was behind it, unquestionably. Leon Rose, however, when he took over, he had full control. Leon Rose has never said anything different. Dolan has never said anything different. You literally have nothing to base any other beliefs on besides your just opinion. He's the boss. He's the owner. He has to sign off. No president he has worked for, he has had work for him, has said he has meddled in their business after Isaiah Thomas. Steve Mills haven't been asterisk. He's more of a placeholder than anything else. All due respect. Leon Rose calls, calls the shots, whether you agree or disagree. Tom Thibodeau is a coach. He has a voice. Worldwide West, consultant. He has a voice. Lower on the totem pole for the most part, in terms of at least notoriety, is Gerson Rosas, who's kind of, uh, he's, his title is Senior Basketball Consultant. He's like an analytics guy. He's he's a player valuation guy. Very much new school NBA mind from as far as I can decipher uh, in an old school organization for the most part. He is likely to be named GM. He has a voice. He's the one who took over the Donovan Mitchell negotiation. Take that with a grain of salt. You know he wasn't handling that alone. But he was the primary. You could say that's good. You could say that's bad. Whatever, wherever you stand, that's fine. Okay. But those are the primary voices in the Knicks inner circle. Those guys have voices. Some louder. Some heavier. They have voices and moves. Leon Rose makes the final decision. When Scott Perry was there, he was one of those guys in that room. That's all. That's who he was for the Knicks. He didn't make final decisions. That's how things are going to be for the Knicks going forward. So all due respect to Scott Perry, I I don't think when he was more of a decision maker here, I don't think he did a bad job. I don't think you can really say he did a bad job. It was only, it was a very short tenure. He has a good reputation around the league. I want all the best for him. I'm sure, I don't know which players were his favorite players over the last few years that he advocated for that worked out for the Knicks and didn't work out for the Knicks. I don't know. I can't say. Maybe those stories will pop up over the next few weeks, but I I wish Scott Perry the best. I just want you Knicks fans to be a little bit more educated before you start running off at the mouth. I had a guy say he's been wanting Scott Perry to be fired ever since he drafted Frank Nilekina. Scott Perry didn't draft Frank Nilekina. This whole time, this guy's been plotting Scott Perry's demise. He didn't even draft the dude. Catch up. The other news is Julius Randle's ankle surgery. Now, I saw this, and I was like, wow, that sucks. I don't know if it was the first ankle injury or the second ankle injury. But... In no way did that change how I felt about how he played in the playoffs. (laughs) Because he was perfectly fine two years ago and played the same way in the playoffs. And I don't know how ankles make you throw bad passes and take bad shots. 
if anything, it might make you miss a shot. But if you watched, there were times where Randall was looking kind of spry out there. And there were times where Randall was like, eh, I'm just going to hang out. I'm not going to chase that down. So when is it? When did his ankle hurt? When he was looking spry? Or when he decided that he didn't want to contest a shot? I thought people were being convenient on both sides of that debate on Twitter. The people who thought that Randall being hurt was the reason why he didn't play well and he wasn't hustling all the time because those same people were arguing that he did play fine and he was hustling all the time. You know, I wouldn't say all of them were saying he played fine because that's, that's objectively false, but they were pointing the fingers everywhere else, but at him. And they definitely weren't buying into the notion that he wasn't hustling the whole time. So now they're saying that his ankle injury is the reason why he wasn't doing the things that they denied he wasn't doing before. It's ridiculous. And then the people who didn't want to consider the ankle injury at all in his performance, they were being incredibly unfair. I saw a guy post Isaiah Thomas limping around in the finals in the late 80s. I forget what year it was when Isaiah Thomas sprained his ankle really bad in the finals and, and played on that gimpy ankle for the rest of the game and made some big plays and won the game. And he said, well, Isaiah Thomas did this, blah, blah. You don't know. Did Isaiah Thomas need ankle surgery on that ankle? Like Isaiah Thomas sprained that ankle in the middle of the game and came back and played. Okay. You don't know the severity of that ankle sprain. You're comparing apples and oranges. Julius Randle sprained that ankle and was out for two weeks. He was supposed to be reevaluated in two weeks and came back and played. Clearly not the same ankle injury. And he came back and played. Okay, and then sprained the ankle again. And you want to compare it to an in-game ankle injury where adrenaline might be the reason why you're able to continue that game? How many times have you seen somebody sprain an ankle in a game and finish the game? How many injuries have you seen on your own team and other teams where you've seen guys get hurt, finish the game, and then you find out, oh, he's out six to eight weeks? It happened to Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard hurt his knee. I'm pretty sure he played on that knee for the rest of the game. And then he didn't play for the rest of the playoffs. So you guys were unfair on both sides. That's that's that rooting to be right type nonsense where you don't really have a strong foundation in your argument. So you try to you try to to swipe the low hanging fruit to make a point, but you're not really making a point to anybody but a few idiots who agree with you. It's not worth it. Just. Just like stand on stand on the solid points that you made, you don't need 15 points to make your point. You need one or two good points and that's it. You looking for evidence 40 years ago, 35 years ago, that somebody can play on a sprained ankle. How ridiculous is that notion? (laughs) You had to go back to the 1980s to find somebody playing on a sprained ankle to make your point? It's stupid. That's stupid. And for those of you who blame the ankle for him not playing well, uh, okay. I mean, that's not the reason for bad passes. That's not the reason for, you know, a few of the decision-making issues that he may have had. You have to reach, you got to dig pretty deep in the bag to say that his bad decisions a couple times is the reason. And one reason he looked real fast contesting the shot and another 
possession two seconds later, he would look real slow because his ankle hurt. Nah, don't do that. But if you're a Knicks fan, no matter how you feel about Julius, you should at least appreciate, and I've always said this, the fact that he tried to come back. And Julius played all year long. He's been he's been a workhorse all year long. He's been an Iron Man all year long. Regardless of how you feel about him and how he played and how poorly he played, what have you, he worked hard to be on the court. And he worked hard a lot of times when he was on the court. And I made this case all year long. He there are ebbs and flows of maximum effort from Julius Randle. It's not like he plays entire games and not and, and doesn't give effort. Not too often at all. And you can't say that about a lot of players. It's just that there are spots in games where you're just not seeing effort and then you see him turn it on for stretches of time in the game. It's like it's like up and down. And as much as you want to criticize him for that and other things, you have to understand that that's not that's not even true for some of your favorite players around the league. They're not giving maximum effort a lot of times Every game, ebbs and flows in the game. A lot of times they're just coasting. And you saw that a little bit from the Boston Celtics in game seven. You're hearing that from guys who follow the team and are around the team and see them all year. It didn't seem like they were playing with maximum effort the entire game. You know, so you have to be fair on that tip is Julius is not the only one. And there's a lot of guys who take off a lot of games in regular season. Julius doesn't. So all the best for Julius Randle on that ankle. Hope he gets better. Hope he's 100%. And you got to appreciate him, his trying to be out there. You got to. Criticize him if you want, but appreciate his trying to be out there for sure, 100%. All right, so let's start with what the Knicks might do next. You've seen a lot of rumors over the last few weeks. You've seen one big name floating around because there's a realistic possibility that this guy might be on the move. And that's Carl Anthony Towns. Let me preface. Many of the reasons why a lot of Knicks fans and NBA fans aren't big Carl Anthony Towns fans, I tend to agree with, personally. I don't necessarily like what I see of him, personally. That could just be preference. Uh, I don't always like his demeanor on the court. I don't really think he's a, he's a dog. You know, that, that that line has been thrown around a lot ever since Josh Hart got here. And it could be used to describe a few Nick players, even, even Randall, to uh, a certain extent. I don't really see him as a dog, but I don't think he's soft either. That's the thing with, with Towns. I don't really think he's soft. People think he's soft. I don't think he's soft. I think he's a very actual, actually a very physical offensive player when he wants to be. His game theory, the way he approaches the game, in other words, is very 2023, though. He's outside a lot. He's not, he's, he's a decently skilled post player in today's day and age, meaning you don't have to beat Kevin McHale today because a lot of times you have a size advantage. As long as you have a nice little decent half hook, nice little turnaround jump shot, uh, able to play physical under the rim. If you're able to do that, you can be a pretty dominant post player against most guys in the league. And he has all of that. 
but he's outside a lot. Falls in love with the jump shot. The one thing about him is he's pretty good at, at attacking closeouts efficiently, putting the ball on the ground once or twice. Very long, strong strides to the basket. When he goes, his offensive package, I think, is 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 way more vast than I think most people realize. You know, you're talking about a guy who this year missed a ton of games due to injury. And he, he tends to get hurt. I mean, if you look at it recently, his first three years in the league, 82 games every year. Then 72 games his fourth year. And then 35 games, 50, then 74, then 29. You know, sometimes it's a little unfair when people call people injury prone or soft and never on the court. Sometimes it's it's a fair criticism. He's kind of in that middle. He has some years in there where he wasn't on the court and you wonder why. I know one of those years was COVID year, so that's not really fair. I think that was a 35-game year. So if you throw that out, you're looking at 82 games, 77, his first four years, 80, 77 to 82, then 50 games, which is a hurt, which hurts, and then a 74. So it's really just two seasons where he's missed a ton of games. So you got to be fair about it. Now, if you look at his season this past year, it was an off season for him. Minnesota's kind of been in the state of flux with the Gobert trade and everything they were trying to do there. He still shot 50% from the field, and it's the guy who takes how many threes a game? Six threes a game, 5.6. That's... That's pretty impressive. You look at his, you want to look at his effective field goal percentage. 56% this past season. I feel like this was an off season for him. 59 last year. 55 before that. 60, 57. This is a guy who knows how to put the ball in the basket. Plain and simple. The shooter from the outside. This year was a down year for him shooting the ball. And he shot. This is this hasn't this wasn't even the most threes he took in a year per game. He was 5.7 this season. Last year, he was 5. The year before that, he was 6. The year before that, he was 8, and he shot 41%. He can, he can knock that shot down. This year, he was just around average. And I, if you just get stuck looking at this past season, not only do you look at him at 37% and you're saying, okay, that's a little bit above the league average. There's nothing to write home about. You look at his career, at career-wise, he shoots 40%. 39-5. So, I mean, that's... And, and obviously, he's way, he's close to 60% every year, 55 to 60% from two every year. From the free throw line, he's in the 80s. This guy's a scorer. You know, every year except for the last two years, he's been at 10 rebounds a game. Now, rebounding, you kind of have to get into the weeds, rebounding the ball. Nowadays, not a lot of rebounds are contested. But like I said, he's not a, he's not a soft player. He's a physical player. You know, I just I think he, sometimes he has a soft mentality. He's one of those irrational confidence guys. And that can be good and bad. It's like you just have confidence because, you know, good for you, but you're not actually making good decisions because you're just overconfident. Sometimes you just 
you know, when guys are irrationally confident, they just do whatever they feel like doing as opposed to being calculating. You know, you want to have confidence, but you don't want to lose the strategic aspect of the game. And I think sometimes he does, which is why people don't like the way he looks in the playoffs. Offensively, I think he is essentially everything the Knicks need at the center position. Now, you can get into a debate about whether he's a center or not. I'll start that in a minute. He's not a big-time shot blocker by any stretch of the imagination, but we're not getting to defense yet. And as a scorer, this guy's been at, you start from his rookie year, 18, 25, 21, 24, 26, 27, 24, 26.5. I'm, I'm calling that 27. Uh, 25 points per game, 24, 25 points per game, 21 points per game this last year. And like I said, things starting to change for him offensively this year with the injuries and Gobert and the struggles, etc. Defensively, he's a guy who I, I've seen him be a force around the rim. He's not going to be anywhere near as good as Mitchell Robinson. I think he's a little bit more versatile than Mitchell Robinson is right now. Naturally versatile. I think Mitchell can effort to be versatile sometimes, but it's not natural for him. So he's going to get caught out there here and there. I think he's definitely more versatile defensively than than Mitchell is. But he's not going to be the shot blocker Mitchell is. I don't think he's not going to be the pick and roll defender that Mitchell is. I don't think. But I, I think he's as good as most teams have at the center position. Meaning, you got to look at it from both sides. What he would give you offensively at the center position, and I'll tell you in a minute why I keep saying that, is probably head and shoulders above what he's giving up defensively in comparison to Mitchell Robinson. Now, the one thing that you're not going to get is you're not going to get the same offensive rebounds because he's not going to be under the rim as much as Mitchell Robinson. And we talked about this, I think, in the last show. One of the reasons why Mitchell Robinson gets so many offensive rebounds is because he's always in paint. So it's like one of those things where you have a guy who's always in the paint in an offense that always keeps him in the paint and you're kind of comparing him to 90% of the league who doesn't have somebody in the paint all the time. So his offensive rebounds are head and shoulders above everyone else's. Not to say he doesn't have the skill set to take advantage of it, but it's head and shoulders above everyone else because a lot of times a lot of teams don't have guys down there. And I don't mean to disparage Mitchell because you saw him eat up the Cavaliers who do have people down there. Right? So, But that, that's part of it. When you have guys who are outside all the time, they're not going to get as many offensive rebounds, whether you think that's good or bad. That's just the case. So Carl Anthony Towns is not going to get as many offensive rebounds as Mitchell Robinson because he's not going to be under the basket quite as much. At the same time, when he is under the basket, he's going to be way more effective at getting the ball at the bat, up, up, to, up in the basket, up to the rim, getting to the line. Way more effective than Mitchell Robinson. So I think when you're comparing the two players – and you're taking defense and rebounding in consideration. Mitchell Robinson has a clear advantage over Carl Anthony Towns, but 
the things that Carl Anthony Towns gives you on offense may outweigh what you're losing. He's just good enough on defense, I feel, to to be not to be comparable, but to keep you to keep you afloat defensively as a center. And then his offense takes you to a whole nother level. Whole nother level. And we've talked about this all year long about how Randall is a less effective player because Mitchell's in the paint all the time. We talked about this last show. RJ's a less effective player because Mitchell's there all the time. Even Jalen Brunson is less effective. But part of part of the greatness of Jalen Brunson is that he can still be effective even though Mitchell is there all the time. Which is why he's so great. But he does affect Randall. And that's not an excuse for Randall, by the way. But he does affect Randall. And he does affect RJ. And and everyone else who wants to get to the rim. Because he's there. And I'm not going to keep going into it. Some of it is their inability to find him. Some of that is his inability to to do anything but catch and dunk the ball. You know, he he can't get the ball and have to maneuver to the rim and get it up like a loony does. He can't do that or doesn't do it. That's why you fools are sitting there watching him uh, in his video clips of him dribbling around, shooting threes in pickup games, saying that you need to, you know, let him loose. Uh, Listen, man, let him loose under the rim with a power dribble and going up with some defense. Can we just have that? Don't tell me, don't show me him out there doing sham gods when he can't catch the ball at the dotted and get the ball in the basket. Don't show me him shooting threes at the YMCA when he can't make a free throw. God bless him for making those free throws at the end of that game. What was it, game five? God bless him for that, though. I don't hate Mitchell Robinson. I, I don't want to see Mitchell Robinson go, personally. But if you're going to look at it objectively and business-wise... I shouldn't say business-wise, but if you're if you're in the business of winning, if you had Carl Anthony Towns at center, the game is the Knicks are exponentially better offensively. You're losing offensive rebounds because you won't be missing quite as many shots <laughs> because you're, everyone's going to be a lot harder to guard with Carl Anthony Towns on the floor. Nobody can just sit in, in the paint and wait on people. Everyone is going to be harder to guard. The Knicks are going to look like some of these other offenses around the league where they have small ball centers who are shooting the ball. The offense is going to be through the roof. They they may not even have to make another change. Not that I'm advocating for that, but they may not even have to make another change to the offense if Carl Anthony Towns was added to the center position. They, they wouldn't have to get anyone else. To be great offensively, frankly, even if you said Carl Anthony Towns not a superstar and blah, 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 I can agree with all of that and also tell you the Knicks would be damn hard to stop. Even with their rudimentary offense, they'd be damn hard to stop Stop if Carl Anthony Towns was, on, was uh, on the team and on the perimeter. Damn hard to stop. So, who would you trade? Well, that's when we get into it. I keep harping on him at the center position because Carl Anthony Towns at the power forward position, although I think he would be head and shoulders above Julius Randle in terms of how the offense would look and how much production he could give you. 
he's head and shoulders above Julius Randle because he has a way more diverse offensive game than Julius does. Okay, with Mitchell Robinson at the front of the rim all the time, Carl Anthony Towns can still find a way to get the ball in the basket, especially if he's being guarded by you know, a smaller power forward. Even with Mitchell there, he has all the little short hooks and push shots, turnaround jump shots, all of the kind of shots that you see Randall taking is kind of hit or miss. You're not sure if he's going to make it or miss it. He's streaky. You know, he'll he'll miss five in a row, make five in a row type deal. Carl Anthony Towns is a much more solid and efficient player at all three levels offensively than Randall is. And that's why he would be better than Randall. Now, Carl Anthony Towns is not a natural power forward. That's the problem with that. If you were to bring in Carl Anthony Towns and trade Julius Randle in that package to bring him here, you are if your plan is to have him and Mitchell Robinson, although you would be better than you were if you had Julius Randle there, offensively at least, I'm not going to talk about locker room and all the other intangibles that we touched on earlier, but offensively you would be better, but you would still be kind of shaky because... Defensively, you would have this kind of Twin Towers lineup. Carl Anthony Towns is not a natural power forward. Carl Anthony Towns told you in that Paul George interview he did on his pot on Paul George's podcast that once he heard that Gobert was coming to the team, he had to train he had to change his training regimen so that he can play power forward. He was planning on being the center. He sees himself as a center. He had to change how he trained. Because he knew he was going to have to play power forward. And you see he had a, a, a relatively down season. And you also see that it really didn't work. And you can say that because of Gobert. You can say that's because of his injuries. He was hurt a lot of the year. You can make excuses that have nothing to do with his inability to play power forward or, or ability to play power forward. The point is, that's not who he is. So... Do you bring him in to play power forward and keep Mitchell Robinson and and still end up with the same kind of problems on your offense that you had before? Because you the amount of assets it would take to get Carl Anthony Towns is going to keep you from getting the next great, great player, like that superstar player that you seem to, as a Nick fan or a Nick organization, seems to covet. You're saying that player is Carl Anthony Towns. And what I'm saying is Carl Anthony Towns is not going to be that player, number one. Number two, he's not going to allow everyone else, namely Jalen Brunson, to be better because he's on the floor. Because Mitchell Robinson is still blocking everybody on his own team, being where he is. The Knicks are still going to struggle offensively because Mitchell Robinson is still there. And we talked about this in the last show. Either you dramatically change how you use Mitchell Robinson on offense and get more creative, or you have to come off of Mitchell Robinson. It won't matter who you bring in if Mitchell Robinson and how you use him, and I stress that because I don't want to make this about picking on Mitchell Robinson, or how you use him doesn't change. RJ's not going to be any better. All Grimes, IQ, go down the line. Carl Anthony Towns can be better than Julius and be more consistent 
when it matters in the playoffs because he has a, a, a much more vast offensive repertoire, but it's still going to be tough sledding because everybody can pack in the paint. And the guy that's there, the guy who's the reason everyone's packing the paint, can't do anything as far as we can tell but dunk the ball. It's not enough. So I'm against trading for Carl Anthony Towns if it means trading Julius Randle and keeping Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, of course, you could trade Julius Randle and then trade Mitchell down the line. Like, I'll be patient if the deal is made because this is less about trading Julius Randle and more about how much better you're going to look Carl Anthony Towns at power forward versus Carl Anthony Towns at center. To me, those are two dramatically different offenses. One, damn hard to stop. The other, eh. Not much better than Minnesota offensively, if you ask me. And Minnesota wasn't exactly lighting it up. This Nick team with Carl Anthony Towns at center, I'm going on record. That team is going to be a nasty team to start to stop. And listen, of course, regular season is a long regular season. You got to have bench and you got to have you know uh, complementary players. You got to have good offensive strategy, defensive strategy, effort, all of that stuff. But if you replaced Mitchell Robinson in that Miami series with Carl Anthony Towns, the Knicks win that series. I don't care what nobody says. I don't care what nobody says. They win that series. Because the Heat, as good as they are, they're not stopping Carl Anthony Towns. They're not stopping the Knicks offensively if Carl Anthony Towns is, is, is uh, spreading the floor. And they're not stopping the Knicks offensively if Carl Anthony Towns catches that ball at the free throw line. He can. He's not Joker because he can't pass the ball like Joker. But if he catches the ball at the top of the key in that zone and you step the wrong way, he puts that ball on the floor. He's bullying a whole lot of people to get to the front of the rim. And if you got Randall playing decently, he's getting open shots. And you don't know if he's going to make or to miss it. We're not going to get into right now whether or not Randall's presence on the team is just in and of itself a going to deter them from being successful. You know, it's not a question of a lot of people are asking the question like Julius Randall has to be the one or the two option. And he can't be the one or two op- one or two options. So, of course, you got to get rid of him. I look at it like, well, he can be the third option. <laughs> or he could be the fourth option. What does that team look like? And I'm much less sure about that than most people. Because I do acknowledge that Randall has ebbs and flows of how effective he is. We talked about that before uh, on both ends of the floor. But when you don't have to depend on him offensively, I think you get more good than bad. I think. I'm not. It's not a strong opinion right now. But... I think you can function with Randall as a third or fourth option. Provided that the other option is efficient on all three levels. The other two, Jalen Brown being one. So I, I got to say, depending on what that package looks like, I don't love, I talked about it. I don't love Carl Anthony Towns, but depending on what that package looks like, I'd have to say basketball wise, I'm all for Carl Anthony Towns at center for the Knicks. I'm all for it. I have some reservations, but... And, of course, it matters what the package is. If Randall's in the package, then that means you got to trade Mitchell. 
because that's not going to work to me. To me, that's a treadmill team. The Knicks are, are likely, depending on who else goes in that trade, the Knicks are likely better than they were last year, but I don't think they're good enough to beat some of the better teams. Keep Randall, trade Mitchell, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to pretend I know what package Minnesota would take. But if there was some there was some way you kept Randall or you traded Mitchell and Randall, understand Minnesota has Gobert, so they don't need Mitchell. But you traded Mitchell and Randall, replaced the power forward with a good solid player and not named Obi. It had Carl Anthony Towns at center. I you know, who knows what that team looks like, but it's not real simple. It's not just trade Mitchell for Cat because Minnesota don't need Mitchell Robinson. It's not just trade Randall and, and picks for Cat because I don't know how much better that team is. As long as you have Mitchell there. So unless the Nick unless the Knicks come back next year with a much more creative offense with Mitchell Robinson, which I just don't see happening. So that's my stance on on Mitchell. I mean uh, on Cat. Uh I don't want the show to run too much over. We're gonna run through these other guys real quick. KP has a player option. The only way he declines that player option is if he is guaranteed to get a longer deal. So, otherwise, he's, he's taking it. I think it's like $36 million or something like that. Something crazy. He's not turning that down unless you offering him, you know, over a $100 million contract. A lot of people want Chris Stapps back. Understand that Chris Stapps defensively is way worse than even Cat is. And he's always hurt. You don't want to bring in Chris Stapps to be your starting center. It hasn't worked for anybody. So not going to work for the Knicks. If you had Chris Stapps to come off the bench, if he was a backup power forward, small ball center option, if that was in the cards, I think I would like that. He's not guarding nobody at backup power forward. Just know that you're probably just deciding to try to outscore people if you put KP on the floor at power forward. or And if you put him at center, that means that one of the centers is gone because they're not going to have three centers. So anytime you start talking about bringing these players in, just understand that you are taking somebody off the team. Now, if you want to start Hartenstein and trade Mitchell for something and then bring KP to back him up and just have like a, a roughneck power forward center on the bench somewhere just in case something goes down, Sure. You know, Jericho Sims, somebody else. I think we need some veteran presence, somebody who could hit a jump shot too. Sure, okay, but that means there's no Mitchell Robinson. Just understand that you're not adding KP and not taking people away. And you need to understand that about most of these ideas. Who are you taking away? You might be fine taking somebody away. Just know that you're doing it. Don't think you're adding, adding these guys, especially KP at the numbers that he's going to need. Don't think you're just adding these guys to the rotation. That's not going to happen. Miles Turner has an interesting contract, makes a lot of money at the front end of the contract, but it it drops down to like $20 million, uh, going into 2025. I don't think the Pacers are trying to trade him. They were for years. I think they might be committed to him now. That's what, the, that's what everything, all the noise coming out of there, out of there kind of says. Miles Turner is not the most physical defender, but he's a great shot blocker. Uh, some of the technical things that he does outside of blocking shots is kind of questionable. I like the idea of Miles Turner 
maybe more than the reality Miles Turner is, you know, uh, it's hard to say. He's been on losing teams for years now. You couldn't make it work with Sabonis. He's always injured. But his contract is one of those contracts where, you know, you pay the cost in the beginning, but then you're getting a guy who's potentially a game changer as a stretch five and, and a shot blocker at the rim. And he has a little bit more skill than that. He can actually do a little bit more than just stand outside and shoot, which is one of the reasons why he's been cranky over the years. Uh, a lot of people have their eyes on Miles Turner. Apparently, apparently the Pacers like a couple of Knicks players. Duarte is another guy who might be on the move. There might be something there with the Pacers. I, I just don't know if they're trading him. But I can see the Knicks replacing Mitchell. I don't see them replacing Hardenstein, to be honest. He's on a good contract. I don't see them replacing him. Mitchell has a, a bigger profile right now in terms of trade value. And I think replacing Mitchell makes the Knicks so much better offensively. It's just you got to make sure you replace him. You replace him with someone who's good enough defensively to make up for what you've lost. Miles Turner is not a strong rebounder. You know, you're losing stuff with Miles Turner. Just know that. You become more of an offensive-focused team, and you're losing some of the grunt work that you get from Mitchell defensively. He's not going to rebound like Mitchell. He's not going to grind like Mitchell has the last couple of years. He didn't do that forever, but he's been doing that the last year or so. You just become an offensive team. With, and understand him as good as Miles Turner is. He's been on a losing team for years. So who knows how he really affects winning? You know, OG, you saw it talk about this in the middle of the season. He's going to be a free agent after uh, this year, I believe. So he's looking for money right now. He's making decent money. OG can play power forward, I think. You know, you don't want him to be your only power forward, but he can play power forward. I think OG quietly, and I don't think it's too quiet. I think a lot of teams feel this way about OG, is he can completely change your game. Now you say, well, if that's the case, then why is Toronto Toronto trash? And it's a good question. If you bring OG in thinking he's going to be your one, two, or three in terms of options offensively, I think you're you're off. That doesn't mean he's terrible. It just means that he's not a go-to offensive player. But what he can do defensively, and he has some slick little defensive techniques that help him get away with fouling. He did that to RJ during a regular season you know, where he, he, he doesn't push at the waist with his forearm. He kind of pushes at the shoulder, and he disguises it so it's harder to see. You know, it's a tricky little thing he was doing, and he got away with a ton in those Nick matchups. But here's a guy that can knock the shot down from the outside. Not a great shooter. He doesn't solve the Nick shooting problem, but I think he's just as good a, a open three-point shooter as Randall is, and probably has better shot selection. I would be, I would be comfortable with OG starting or playing a ton of power forward minutes. You'd be a small team, but you're seeing a team like Miami has a chance to win a championship being relatively small across the board. Uh, versatility at that position defensively is more important than size. You just need to have size as an option. You have people on your roster that, you know, can be functional on the court who have size. So, you know, you're definitely turning 
you're turning the Knicks into a different kind of team if you played OG at power forward a ton of minutes. But I think you would actually be a better team if you were surrounding the, if the roster beyond OG was, uh, was a complete one. If the Knicks had the shooting that they need, they add the shooting that they need. If they add, you know, a three-level score on top of OG, I think the Knicks could be a better team. You know, if you move Randall and picks and were able to get OG and a three-level scorer from somewhere, even if it was a budget guy, like a Norman Powell. I'm a big Norman Powell fan. The Knicks, if Knicks have a lineup where Randall's not on the team, but they have Norman Powell and OG, they're a better team. I think they're a better team. They're a championship team. I'm just kind of... I'm not comfortable even talking about it. just me sitting here talking about this makes me feel funny. I just don't know. I think OG is a great tool to have on this roster, but I just don't know. Does that make you a championship team? I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to have to say no. I'm not sure if you want to commit the amount of money that you need to commit to OG without knowing if you have the other guys offensively to make up for what he can't create. He's not an offensive creator. He can be solid. He can he can score off open shots, off attacking closeouts. You know, he can take a little mid-range here and there. He can take advantage of a mismatch. He has good game theory, good good approach to the game, which I think is a benefit to the Knicks in and of itself, but they still need a shot creator. And the more I talk about this stuff, the more I convince myself that with this current coaching staff, and that might be a mouthful in and of itself, there's nothing the Knicks are going to be able to do that's going to make them better, good enough, unless they remove Mitchell Robinson. Use him differently or remove him from the lineup. I'm kind of talking myself in circles here, thinking there's just nothing, there's just none of these moves for the you know, these lower-end guard-forward players, none of them are going to matter. They're just not. The team could be a little bit better. They could they could score more points. You know, the Knicks were eighth in offensive efficiency this year. But in the playoffs, it, it doesn't matter if you can't create shots and you're not going to be able to create shots as long as you have somebody sitting in the rim all the time. And I think that's a philosophical – I think it's a philosophical error on Tibbs' part because he can always say that the Knicks just miss shots that they normally made. But I think the reason why they miss shots is because there's just no rhythm to the offense. It's the rhythm that you see in a Miami offense or a Denver offense and any number of other teams, it comes from the fact that there's so much ball movement and penetration that the team has to constantly fall to the paint to stop the rim. And then that pass out produces shots. So everyone is in rhythm. Everyone's confident. Everyone understands where the ball and ball is going to be where it's going and they're ready to shoot of course you got to have good shooters at the end of the day but I think the Knicks are worse shooters in the playoffs because those shots are too uneven too few and far between there's too many people there's, there's no comfort because there's always someone at the rim so people don't have to abandon shooters to get to the front of the rim because there's always someone there. As long as you always have someone there defensively, then these shots are going to, they're not going to be comfortable shots. And the ball doesn't move because 
No one has to rotate over to stop penetration. So you can you can get to the front of the rim because somebody's going to be there. And usually when you get to the front of the rim in the NBA, you're drawing in a bunch of help defenders and you can create a bunch of open shots because of the pace the Knicks play with. They play with a slow play uh, pace. The ball doesn't find these shooters enough. It doesn't find them with enough room. It doesn't find them with a ton of movement. And these guys are getting these shots that... Their options are limited because if they if they get chased off the shot and they put the ball on the floor, there's nowhere to go because everybody's still in the paint. Randall doesn't relocate. Mitchell's still there. This you have to have dynamic three level scorers or a dynamic three level scorer who can just mid range jump shot you to death like a Devin Booker. I'm not saying Knicks have any chance of getting him. I'm just saying a guy like who can mid range uh, jump shoot you to death because. The closeout is almost going to is going to be there way more often for the Knicks than, than for other teams because they don't have to commit to the help nearly as much at the rim. So you need a guy who can put the ball on the floor and then pull up because you don't you can't get to the front of the rim. There's always somebody there. Not only is Mitchell almost always there, Randall's almost always there because he doesn't relocate hardly ever. Randall's a better player with no Mitchell Robinson. Randall's a better player when Jalen Brunson's not on the floor, frankly. And Jalen Brunson's a better player when Randall's not on the floor. But it, I don't think it's just about those two. I think it's about those two and, and they're not being, or I should say it's a product of they're not, it not being enough spacing on the floor for them all to operate. If there was spacing, then they would play better together. Even with Randall's uh, you know, failings as a player, if there was spacing, they would operate better together because there's no spacing Brunson is not creating offense for other people because when people come to help, he can still score. And if he passes, they're not open. (laughs) They're not open because that help in the playoffs, not a regular season, but in the playoffs, that help is usually just hedge and recover. So if you don't have a Matt Struess type shooter, Look, at Mastruz is not knocking down every shot. They're scaring Mastruz off of shots. Duncan Robinson has more height, so he can shoot over more. a lot of these help defenders, and he can be more of a weapon. But Duncan Robinson even, he's not getting 10 threes a game. He has to put the ball on the floor and attack a closeout and make another play. And the reason why that's effective is because there's always help defenders coming from the perimeter to help him at the rim because they're shooting. Even Bam, who's not a three-point shooter, he's at the free throw line all the time. So the help has to come from the free throw line, which means Bam is going to be open. If there's someone always there in good defensive position, you're not going to get the same quality offense. As simple as that. You can go down this whole list. You know, Gary Harris, a a low-end free agent, potential you know, two-way player. First of all, who are you replacing in the rotation? Who who does how does he make you better? Grimes can't shoot. IQ can't shoot. I mean, we know Josh Hart is struggling from the from three, but he's not going anywhere. So, who are you replacing in rotation with Gary Harris? Matt Struess is a free agent. He's going to get paid. He's probably going to get eighteen to twenty million. Matt Struess, you see him in the finals. He's a weapon. I like Matt Struess, and he can barely, it's hard hard for him to get a shot, even with an offense like Miami has. He's not going to put the ball on the floor and murder you. 
So it's like I'm not going to say it's like having Evan Fournier because he can give you more defensively and he's just a you know a much more physical, functionally functionally physical player. Fournier can play physical too, but it's just because he can't move his feet. <laughs> it don't really matter. So Mastruz is a weapon, but who are you removing from their rotation? You removing somebody? No more Grimes? No more IQ? You replacing? You replacing Struz? I mean, you replacing IQ with Struz? You know, tell me who you who you want to remove, and we might have to have a whole show on who needs to stay and who needs to go. Because when you're adding shooting to the rotation, and we talked about this last show, that means you're replacing somebody. And is Struess the same level player at twenty million, eighteen, twenty million a year as he is making a million? Huh? No, you want to find the next Matt Struess. You don't want Matt Struess. You want the next Matt Struess who's doing it for a milli. You don't want twenty million dollar Matt Struess because that's not going to do nothing for you. That's not enough help. It's not going to work. Trust me, you know how much money Fournier Fournier was supposed to be Mastruce. Why isn't Fournier Mastruce? Some people will tell you that's because Tibbs doesn't know what he's doing. Other people will tell you it's because Fournier is not a plus on the court. Because he's not enough of a two-way player. And it's because he doesn't create enough offense to warrant getting paid $20 million on a team like the Knicks. And it's the same thing for Struce. He's not going to create enough offense for to be getting $20 million. I don't care. I don't care what Duncan looks like in the playoffs. Duncan looks real good in the playoffs right now. You don't want to pay that guy $85 million. They're getting away with it. Credit to Miami. But you saw the last two years, Miami couldn't even trade Duncan Robinson. Making too much money. What he does, listen, this is a bigger conversation. What a guy like Duncan Robinson does is valuable to a certain number. To a certain number. Duncan is a weaponized shooter, and I used that term before. Is he can shoot any way, any kind of shot, any kind of defense around. But because Duncan can put the ball on the floor now, it makes him a bigger, bigger weapon. That's not a weapon that he's going to be on a team that doesn't have spacing at the front, at the front of the rim. Because you're going to put the ball on the floor, and it's going to be like, hey, here's Mitchell's man right here. What you going to do next? Mitchell's hiding behind him, not giving you a passing lane. What you going to do? Not going to work. You can't pay those guys $20 million if you're in a position like the Knicks. You can do that when you have your stars and you need to surround them. Then you can pay those guys $20 million. Hopefully, they're two-way players. They're not two-way players. You're probably spinning your wheels. But when you don't have your stars, you can't afford that. That was a mistake the Knicks made with Fournier. And when I say I have your stars, I can hear you. I can hear you from here talking about what about Julian Brunson? He's just, not enough. You see, you see Denver they out there with one of the greatest players ever, and and Jamal Murray. You need that number two guy, even if you think Brunson's the number one. You need the number two, and if you don't think Brunson's number one, you think then you have to believe that he's a number two. That means you need the number one. If you have those guys, then you can start spending your money on on dudes like. Struess and Duncan Robinson, etc. And then be in, in cap hell for the next five, six years because you have your foundational pieces. The Knicks are not in that position. And the next person who says Trey Young, I'm throwing something at you. You want to start a backcourt with Trey Young and Jalen Brunson? Jalen Brunson has to bust his butt just to be a below average defender. You want to bring Trey Young in here 
and play them together. Trey Young got his own team in Atlanta, and they throw up all over themselves every single year. Then fired the coaching staff, took out the whole front office. Trey Young hasn't been able to elevate that team past that magical run he had a few years ago. Throws up on himself every playoffs. Has a big game, and everybody wants to talk for the next 24 hours about how great he is. And the next game he comes out, and he's throwing the ball to the side of the backboard. You want Trey Young here? That's what, that's what you think the solution is? Ridiculous. Anyway, I think we solved it. We solved it. We talked our way through it, and we solved the problem. Whatever the Knicks need to net, whatever the Knicks do this offseason is going to have to include moving Mitchell Robinson and getting someone who can play defense, not just any replacement for the center position, but someone who can play defense, enough defense in this tip system to be uh, suitable and can hit an outside shot. And there aren't too many of those guys out there. And if you're not going to get those guys, if you're not going to get a guy worth his salt, then you might as well just keep Mitchell Robinson or keep Hartenstein and bring in a backup who, who has that kind of versatility just, just so you can have options in the playoffs. Kind of like what Miami did with Kevin Love. You know, Maybe you bring in KP to be a backup and and um, you still got to get rid of one of those centers and it's probably going to be Mitchell. So that doesn't even make sense. I think the only move for them, now that I think about it, I think one of the bigger moves they can make is to bring in Cat. And if it's not Cat, you know, tell me who that center is. Tell me, tell me who that center is, or tell me you're going to spend all summer using using Mitchell Robinson the way Golden State uses Draymond Green, not just using his passing ability because you know Mitchell's not going to become Draymond Green overnight, but just in the dribble handoffs and just in the off the ball screens making the center have to pay attention to something outside of the paint instead of him just standing under the rim, hiding behind the center like he does most of the time. Either you're going to use him like that or you got to remove him because you're not going to win. And it's so obvious if you're looking looking at how the playoffs have gone, the Knicks are just not going to win as long as scoring is such a difficulty and a grind. And it's always going to be a grind if they continue to use Mitchell the way they do. Either you use him differently or you remove him. And if you remove him, the options are really limited to what you're actually going to do. So maybe Cat, and I didn't talk about this, but Cat with his relationship with the CAA, which is Leon Rose's agency that he left to start running the Knicks. And you know all of the nepotism that's going on there with CAA clients in the Knicks organization. There's a relationship there. Uh, Rumors that Leon Rose loves Cat. There's also rumors that Thibodeau have no problem coaching Cat again. So there's a lot going on there. Cat is from New Jersey, I believe, and he's a Yankee fan. So, you know, of course, you don't want to be in Minnesota. It's cold as hell out there. There's a lot going on there that points to maybe him wanting to be here and the Knicks wanting him. And I think it could, I think it could work as much as I'm not excited about it. I think if there's a move that would take this team and this roster, for the most part, as we know it, to the next level, that's one. That's one right there. You wouldn't, you would literally not have to move anyone else on the roster. Maybe you want to, but you wouldn't have to move anyone else on the roster to be head and shoulders better than you were last year. 
And I don't know if there's a ton of moves available out there that that does that. You know, Black Bradley Beal, Chris Paul. Chris Paul wants to be, his family lives in L.A. He doesn't want to come to New York. And once again, who is he replacing? You don't want IQ anymore? You're moving IQ so Chris Paul can be back at point guard? Chris Paul would make the second unit hum because he would put Mitchell in pick and roll and he would actually get Mitchell the ball, find a way to get Mitchell the ball. Even though Mitchell is going to, you know, he's going to yell and scream at Mitchell until he figures out what he's supposed to do, (laughs) which might not be helpful. But now in the fourth quarter, are you playing Mitchell and, I mean, are you playing Chris Paul and Jalen Brunson together? Chris Paul can't really guard anybody anymore. That's why Phoenix is going to get rid of him. So, I mean, there's there's pros and cons to a lot of these moves. You know, Chris Paul running the Knicks offense, the Knicks offense will look 100 times better because he's 100 times better at pick and roll offense than Jalen Brunson is. But at the same time, you're not taking Jalen Brunson off the, off the floor for a significant amount of time because he can do a bunch of things that Chris Paul can't do anymore. And then you're not going to play them together because Chris Paul is terrible defensively. Now, I shouldn't say terrible, but he's not the same defensively, and you have, you have a small backcourt. And if that's what you're doing, then who's not playing? IQ not on the team anymore? Grimes not on the team anymore? I can see you being a better team, but I don't see you being a championship-contending team. How much money are you going to pay him? You bet. You still got to make a big trade if you bring in Chris Paul in to be a backup point guard. I don't think it's a terrible move. I just don't 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 make that your first move when you don't have a second and third because you're still not winning anything. You know, don't break your neck to try to bring this guy in for one year when he can't wait to get back out to L.A. You know, he wants to play with for the Lakers. He wants to go to the Lakers anyway. What are we talking about? He wants to go play with LeBron. LeBron wants him. The Lakers want him. That's where he's going. The Clippers want him. That's where he's going. Not coming here. And he wouldn't put us over the top anyway. Knicks need a three-level scorer. Or they need, uh, with some size, or they need an offense that clears the paint and accentuates the scorers that you already have. That includes guys who haven't shown it, like Grimes. Guys like Levine, he would be perfect if he wasn't making $50 million a year in a couple years. Levine makes stupid money. Stupid money. And he gets hurt all the time. But if it wasn't for that, he'd be perfect. He could score in all three levels and get to the rim. And he works, he's a hard worker. Not the best defensive player in the world, but you can get away with it. But he's making a zillion dollars. And Knicks don't have any bad contracts to that, to that degree where you're like, well, we might as well pay Levine $50 million a year. <laughs> Because we got this guy, we'll just trade him, put him in the trade with the picks. Nah, they'd be trading young players and reasonable contracts for a guy who's making $50 million for the next three, four years or whatever it is. You know, you're really rolling the dice with Levine, more so than Carl Anthony Towns, who's making a zillion dollars too, but at least because he's going to be making $60 million by the time 2027 comes. But with Carl Anthony Towns... You know that you're you're getting, and I'm not. Listen, I'm not. I'm not saying this with any level of certainty, but at least you know that you're getting a player who, at his best, can affect winning for your team because of the position that he plays and how he plays it. Whereas Levine, as shooting guard slash small forward, hasn't had any success in the playoffs. 
had a good game to play in tournament this year had had some you know really stepped up i think i like his fire and his intensity down the stretch of games and his play in the fourth quarter is often overshadowed by DeRozan's play in the fourth quarter where DeRozan has been very clutching in the fourth quarter but Levine has not been able to elevate teams as an as a number 1 or even a number 2 and although that's easier easy to say and it's probably a little simplistic to say that he can't you would think he was perfect for what the Knicks need but the amount of things that you're sacrificing or risking to bring him in to play shooting guard when he has when you can't really look at the schematics of it and say well once you add Levine to this team we're going to be this I don't know it's risky to me cat and I don't know what the package looks like cat at center is not risky to me I think that's I think that's like easy easy money and you say, well, Cat hasn't done anything at center, blah, blah, blah. Because he's at center, because there's Jalen Brunson on that team, and because, again, you know, what, what this trade looks like, who knows. Because of the other players on this team and how they function and how we've watched them function, if you add a center with his skill set to what we already know exists on this roster, I can confidently say that they would be head and shoulders better offensively than they were. What do they lose intangible-wise? That's where the uncertainty is. I can't say that about Levine. I can say that in in theory, having that three-level scorer makes you better, but that means you're very reliant on Levine shooting jump shots because he's he's not going to get to the rim any better than anyone else. You know, the offense is still not going to have any cohesion. It's still not going to have any chemistry. You just have a guy that you think is a guy you can give the ball to and create offense in all three levels, even more so than Jalen Brunson. It's just an opportunity to to take the ball away from Jalen Brunson in the fourth quarter when I don't know if that's your plan. With Cat, you don't have to take the ball out of Jalen Brunson's hands. You can keep it in his hands, and if you pay too much attention to Jalen, now Cat is going to step up and burn you. Yeah, I don't see it that way with Levine. Because the players are going to be collected at the front of the rim, yeah, you can you have to close out on Levine, but that's no that's not that's nothing for these teams. That's nothing for, for these teams. Having the big man outside the paint and having to having to run around and scramble because cats out there shooting forty percent from three or putting the ball on the floor and coming downhill at the front of the rim, and if you foul him, he's going to shoot eighty percent. Like that's a lot. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. Anyway, we're going to wrap it up. I think the next show, we should talk, probably talk about who needs to stay and who needs to go. Or I shouldn't say need. But there's going to be some real sacrifice if you want to bring some players in. And, you know, whether it be a cat or a veen or whoever it is that you think is going to be the answer. Some of these guys can't be here. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time about the Knicks offense. Because that's unlikely to change. And frankly, if you bring in bring in another coach, it'll get a little bit better. But as long as you have the same personnel, I still think it it struggles in the playoffs when you don't have options at the center position to make people have to come out of the paint defensively. That's really the conclusion I'm coming to now. The Knicks can't move forward with Mitchell Robinson. The end. Anyway, check out SportsEthos.com. A lot of Wagering news, DFS, those parlays, and those player props, etc. Go to sportsethos.com. 
Make sure you follow at Sports Ethos on Twitter. Follow at Ethos Knicks. Until next time.